This uh, text is uh, is difficult, but more than difficult, it's heavy. And so I want to ask you to just pray with me before we get started that God would, would help me and help all of us have to have ears to hear. Let's pray together. Well, this is a difficult moment in human history. Difficult to see ourselves. Difficult to see you. There's all kinds of reasons to have roadblocks to hear your word this morning. And so I'm praying that you would do something that I couldn't do and you would hurdle over those roadblocks in the human heart and give ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in high school, I listened to two different genres of music. I liked to listen to R&B music, what was called funk music. And so that gives me my natural rhythm. So if you ever see me, you think that's why he has that natural rhythm. You know, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and OJs, and the Brothers Johnson. I mean, I could start singing them, but I won't do that here. So that was one genre. The other genre was just sort of classic rock music. Now, I'm not suggesting you go buy any of these albums. I'm just saying when I was in high school, this is what I listened to. And one of my favorite rock bands was a group called Styx. And probably if you're over 40, you've heard of this band. And one of their hit songs was titled Grand Illusion. Here are some of the, the vocabulary they use. Don't be fooled by the radio the TV, or the magazines. They'll show you photographs of how your life should be, but they're just someone else's fantasies. Gosh, think about if that was true in the 70s. How much more true today? So if you think your life is in complete confusion because your neighbors got it made, just remember that it's a grand illusion. Someday soon we'll stop to ponder what on earth this spell we're under. We made the grade and still we wonder who the hell we are. See, Sticks had some truth here. You, you look around and you grab for what the world is showing you and you make the grade. You, you got what the world wants. But somehow there's some kind of hole in your heart and you wonder, who the hell am I? What the hell am I doing here? And it creates this incredible internal frustration because you've gotten everything that you should have had it made, but you still have some kind of emptiness in your soul. And I would say you're living in a grand illusion. And the grand illusion began back in Genesis chapter 3. Sticks just happens to be writing about it some thousands of years later. But the grand illusion is believing, first, that God couldn't, couldn't be trusted. So that's the first thing that happens in Genesis chapter 3. We looked at God and said, you know what, I'm not sure you're good. I'm not sure you can be trusted. And instead of trusting you, guess who can be trusted? Me. I can be trusted. I should take control of things. God, you're not working out things the way it should be. So if you just give it to me, you hand it to me, you give me the keys, I can take care of creation. 
And so when that happened, God comes back into the garden and he asks this question, Adam, where are you? And as we've stated before, it wasn't because Adam, it wasn't because God didn't know Adam where Adam was. It's because Adam didn't know where the hell he was. He had no idea who he was. He had no idea where he was. Adam was underneath this grand illusion. He'd fallen underneath this spell. He foolishly believed he could become divine. And yet his actions led in the, in, in the, in the very opposite direction. Instead of somehow bringing divinity into creation, he brought death and destruction into creation. If you remember, if you look back in chapter 2, verse 4, you have this phrase that repeats ten times over the book of Genesis. It's like a, a literary marker. It's like a way of saying there's a new chapter happening. And it's this phrase, these are the generations of. And it happens ten times. It's the way Moses sort of keeps the, the, the story going in Genesis. And it's this question to hear in 2-4 is, whatever happened to the heavens and the earth? I mean, God created the heavens and the earth. They were very good. So whatever happened to them? And then that this chapter unfolds 2-4 to 4-24. And the answer to whatever happened to the heavens and the earth is it went in a downward spiral. You remember the the first beautiful love ballad sung by Adam in 2.23 is quickly replaced by death metal. Lamech is singing his song at the end. And Adam, who's singing to his beautiful bride about what God has created for Adam, now Lamech is singing to his two brides. And it's a death metal song. Wish you could hear the difference in the tone. And it's all about Lamech. How great Lamech is. He's at the very center, and his two wives should look at him like that, and so should all of creation. Lamech is just a picture of the human heart. He's moved into the center of all creation, and everything should now be terminating on him. It's a grand illusion, and it's quite depressing end to this chapter. It, it ends in like this disharmony, except there, there's just a ray of hope that Sam talked about last week. Just this, this last sentence that, hey, there was another son born, this line of Seth that, that God had planted in, our, in Genesis 3.15, this seed. Somebody's going to come of the woman, and, and there's another line, and, and something's going to happen through the line of Seth. And then we have chapter 5, verse 1. You see again this sort of bookmarker. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So you're kind of turning to chapter 5 and saying, okay, here's a new chapter. And you're asking this question, well, whatever became of Adam? We, we see what happened to the heavens and the earth. Whatever became of Adam? Whatever became of Adam and his descendants? Whatever became of humanity? And sadly, it's another dark chapter. I mean, if I wasn't preaching through a book of the Bible, I wouldn't choose this chapter to preach through. Because it's a dark, bitter chapter following a dark, bitter chapter. And it stretches from 5, 1 to 6, 8. And chapter 5 is essentially, it's an obituary. 
you know, you, you don't do this anymore, but you, you used to get a newspaper and in the backs of Section C or something, you know, just this small print obituary. Here are the people who've died in your town. And essentially, Chapter 5 is just one long obituary. Everybody dies. And sadly, then it ends in Chapter 6, verse 1 to, the, to verse 8, this last little section. And the way I imagine this last section after the obituary is like four solemn, dark, dark drum beats. It feels like nails in a coffin. And you, you can see them for yourselves. Just listen, first drum beat, the destruction of marriage. Whatever the sons of God are and the daughters of men, and there's a lot of scholarly debate as to what that actually means. Is, is it this line of Seth and the line of Cain? They're crossing some kind of marital boundary. Is it some sort of angelic being marrying a, a woman? A lot of scholars think that, that some, some, some uh, spiritual barrier got broken that angels, fallen angels, have possessed men, and then they begin to marry women. Well, there's a lot of debate as to what it is, but what you can say here is a marital boundary that was never meant to be broken got broken. And it's really the same with Lamech, who marries two wives. And isn't it interesting that when sin grows in a society, when sin is rampant in a society, Marriage gets distorted or redefined. God has created, he has ordained certain boundaries, and they get crossed when sin runs rampant. See, what happens in Genesis, unfortunately, doesn't stay in Genesis. Second drumbeat, God establishes a terminating point. Verse 3. You just feel God's tiredness. I'm tired of dealing with these people. So they're gonna, they're only gonna live for 120 more years. It's not establishing a boundary on how long humans are gonna live. It's establishing a boundary of how much longer before the flood. I'm gonna put up with this generation, these people, 120 more years. Verse 5, the third drum beat, describes the, the wretched condition of man's heart, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And then just look, every intention of his hearts, only evil, continually or all the time. And then this final drumbeat, very unusual, that we'll unpack in a moment. The Lord was sorry that he had made man. It grieved him to his heart. So I'm going to blot out. I'm going to wipe away like a whiteboard. I had created something beautiful. I'm going to take it, take a cloth and I'm just going to wipe it out. And then notice what happens essentially in verse 7 is, is decreation. All, all the things that he created, everything on the land, the, the animals, the creeping things, the birds, everything in the heavens, everything is going to go back to this watery chaos like it was back in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Everything goes back to this formless void. It's decreated. Humanity is devolving. 
But notice, just like the, the, this last section, two to, to chapter 2 to chapter 4, uh, this, this, this uh, generation, this little chapter ends again with a little ray of hope. It's just, it's a tiny little ray, but it's like one sweet note after these four very difficult drum beats. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then notice verse 9. Now these are the generations of Noah. You're turning a chapter, this, this dark moment. Now you're asking, is, it, is there any hope in this dark moment? And the answer is, yes, there is some hope. And it has this one soft, sweet note at the end of the chapter before we turn to chapter 6, verse 9, and to another chapter of the book of Genesis. So this this section is some scholars say the most difficult one of the most difficult sections of scripture to interpret. And so what I want to do is just try to make it as simple as I can and and I want us to look just at two things, focus on two things, the heart of man and the heart of God. So we sort of have this backdrop. Now let's just do our best to take a very sober look at our heart. And then let's look at God's heart. So first, uh, the heart of man. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And you see this again in um, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. You're supposed to understand the contrast. God is now looking down at the earth, and what does he see? He sees human violence. And you're supposed to notice the contrast from chapter 1, when God saw, and when God saw, what did he say? Oh, it's good. It's very good, in fact, when he gets to Adam and Eve, when he looks at humanity, the way he's created it, he says, now it's very good. And now he's looking down at humanity, and he's saying, I'm sorry I made this. It's all human violence. So God determines to make an end of of all flesh. And then if you go back to verse 5, Moses tells us, or God tells us, that this, this outward violence that we see in verse 11 and 13 are just symptoms of what's happening in the human heart. Well, look, look what he says. And the Lord was sorry, uh, that this, and the Lord saw the wickedness of man was very great, and that every intentions of the thought of his heart. See, you see it, you see these symptoms, you see this outward violence, but Moses is going back and God's going back and saying, the real problem is there's a problem with the, the human heart. See, sin, sin is not violence. Sin is not lust. Sin is not greed or gossip. Sin, those are just outward symptoms of an inward problem. I have a bad and defective heart. And because I have a bad and defective heart, then these things pour out of it. And we know this just from listening to Jesus, Matthew 15. The things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these things make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. See, it's like Jesus is the doctor and saying, I can give you a diagnosis of your human heart because I see all the symptoms. You have all these symptoms spilling out of your heart, and it tells me you have a, a problem with your heart. It, Jesus is saying the, the, the uh, mirror of your heart is your mouth. 
What comes out of your mouth, what comes through your mind and out of your mouth, it tells us what is the condition of your heart. So I don't know if you've done this, but I know I've done this sadly. Have you ever done this where you say something and even as you're saying it, you wish you weren't saying it? You know, oh, this is a bad statement. It's, it's like rolling out of your mouth and you're trying to roll it back in as it's coming out. And, and in order to cover, what do you say just as it gets the shock value to the person you're talking to? What do you say? I didn't really mean it. And see, what Jesus is saying is, no, you did mean it. You actually did mean it. You didn't mean to say it out loud, maybe. But it was in your heart. And we've just gotten a little mirror of a condition that you have in your heart. The real problem isn't what you said. The real problem is what it came out of. You have some sort of dysfunction, a huge dysfunction, a disease of the heart. And just as a bad heart affects every part of your body, a sinful heart corrupts every part of a person's soul. Notice the pervasiveness, every intention, only evil all the time. Theologians like to have good words for these things, and they call that total depravity, meaning every area of your life now has this stain of sin. Maybe an easy way to think of it is it's not absolute depravity. You're not as bad as you possibly could be, but every area of your life is tainted with sin. So if I have a clean glass of water up here and I take a drink of it, and then I put some deadly poison in it, well, you still have a lot of water in the glass. But the, the deadly poison is, is mixed in with every part of the good water, so I can't drink any part without getting some part of the poison. And so when you when I when I think about when I'm thinking about this text and I'm thinking about chapter five, I mean, verse five, particularly, I'm thinking, why is it so important to really understand the condition of the human heart? Why don't we just skip over this, Paul, and get to love and grace? Let's just get to that part. Why is it important that you really understand you have a correct diagnosis of what's going on in your own heart? And I would say that if you don't really understand the problem, you're never really going to reach for the correct solution. If you don't really understand the condition in your own soul, you're always going to be reaching for some other alternative solution that's not going to be correct. And you can spend your entire life treating symptoms, never treating the sin. You could spend your whole life in a grand illusion. You, everyone knows they have problems. It's not really a mystery. It's how do I solve those problems? It seems like my neighbor has it made. And I reach out for that grand illusion. And yet somehow I'm still not fulfilled. Several years ago, a guy named Patrick Lawler was a construction worker was working in Colorado. And he was building something in the off-season at a ski resort. He noticed he had a toothache. And for this toothache, he thought, well, I just need some aspirin and some ice cream. You know, that's a great solution to most of my pain, aspirin and ice cream. 
And so he reached for the aspirin and ice cream. But six days you know, in, he's like, the aspirin and ice cream, they're just not really getting to the problem of this pain in my tooth. So he decides to go to the dentist. The dentist takes some x-rays and notices that he has a four-inch nail in his head that's gone through the roof of his mouth. And he had no idea it was there. He did remember using a nail gun and it uh, unusually discharging a nail. And when he looked around, he said, well, there's a nail now back behind me stuck in this board. So when it discharged, it must have shot a nail behind me. It's very dangerous if you've used one of these automatic nail guns. But it actually discharged two nails. And his reaction was so immediate, he looked around. One of the nails went through his mouth. He never even noticed it. Hard as that is to believe. And so here this man is. He's living with a four-inch nail through the soft palate of his mouth, just half an inch away from his eye socket and his brain. And he thinks, if I take aspirin and ice cream, you see, if you don't correctly diagnose the, the true condition of your heart, you can spend your life taking aspirin and ice cream hoping your pain will go away. And it doesn't work like that. If you watched any of the news just this past week, Lamar Odom, this very well-known L.A. Laker basketball guy. I mean, if anybody's got it made, he's got it made. He married a Kardashian. So, so he's got all this money. He's got all this fame. He marries into this beautiful family, more fame. And they find him at a, at a brothel, nearly dead. Spends $80,000 on a three-day trip to a brothel in Nevada. The report is he took ten different doses of a sexual enhancement drug. And cocaine. And he's almost dead. You see, he has pain. He has real pain. If you've heard the story, the things that have happened to him in the last couple of years, real pain. But do you see, he's reaching for aspirin and ice cream. And before you say, oh, God, what, a, what an idiot. No, no, no. It's the condition of every human heart. Lamar Odom happens to be famous enough and married into enough fame that his face gets on the television screen. But I seriously doubt anybody would want their thought life up on the television screen over just this past week. Why? Because you have pain and you're trying to find some way to medicate that heart. And you're reaching out to the world and all the world's solution, aspirin and ice cream. And so God mercifully comes in and says, no, I want you to see the condition of the human heart. Because if you don't really understand the condition, if you don't really understand what the problem is, you're never really going to see the Savior. And so when you look at a human heart, when you look at your own heart, this is one of the hurdles that you have to get over, especially in our society. So many songs, so many poems, so many things said about Oh, he's so good. Romans 3.12, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. 
Not your grandmother. Not you. See, if you don't really feel the depth of that problem, you're always going to be reaching for aspirin and ice cream. Second thing, we see the heart of God. And I want to look at the heart of God with these three things. So I'm imagining three chambers of the heart of God. One, notice the judgment. He, he sees this divine judgment. He's going to pronounce divine. He's going to pronounce his. He sees this uh, human violence and he pronounces it a divine judgment. Chapter seven, verse twenty-one says this: "And all the flesh died that moved on the earth." Hard to imagine. I mean, you think about this Category Five storm that hit Mexico. How about a Category Five storm that hits the entire planet? All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. See this decreation? All mankind, everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heaven, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those who are with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed. Such a difficult passage. You, you hear this judgment. And I would suggest that this idea of divine judgment, this execution of divine judgment, is a primary problem for many people when they come to the Bible. It causes many people to back up from the Bible. Now, you see it here, but you see it many times, in, especially in the Old Testament. And you, when you see it, you just go, I, can't, I just can't believe in a God who would do something like that. I just, I just can't think that there's a God out there who's going to exercise this kind of divine judgment. And when you see it, you get a sense of how difficult this and weighty this is. Many people, and I, I'm, I'm, I can at least understand why they would want to back up and say, I just can't believe that there's a God who's going to ex execute divine judgment. So I don't believe in what the Bible has to say. Now, if you've thought that way. Or maybe you have someone who thinks that way. I don't want to take away the fact that divine judgment is disturbing. It's meant to be disturbing. But I want to ask this question. If you really can't stomach the reality of divine judgment against human violence, my question to you is with the enormous amount of human violence in this world, especially against women and children, what do you do with that? I mean, if you say, I just can't believe that there is a God who executes divine judgment. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Okay. So my question is, so what do you do with it? It's not like human violence goes away. How do you think about human violence? How do you think about it intellectually? I mean, if there's no ultimate judge, then the violence of the world is just a pattern. It's natural, sort of the, the survival of the fittest, right? I mean, the larger fish, what do they do? They eat the smaller fish. You even use the smaller fish, do you not? To catch the larger fish. And you don't have a big problem with that, do you? I'm hooking a fish through its brain and throwing it out, hoping to get a bigger fish so I can eat that fish. I mean, is there a big uproar about that in Wilmington? I haven't heard it recently. The, the, the bigger animals, what do they do? They eat the smaller animals. 
It's not a big problem. You see it on the National Geographic channel or you don't have a big issue with that. You don't have a big issue when you have a stake. It's just natural. So the weaker people, the smaller people, when they get used and consumed by the bigger people, it's got to be okay. But see, at that point, you want to say, but that's not okay. And my question is, why is that not okay? Why, if there isn't a divine judge intellectually, why isn't that just the same thing? So I think if you step away from this divine judge, you find yourself in a harder place. I don't want to say it's not hard to read this text. It is hard. It's disturbing. But I think if you step away and say, I can't believe in somebody like that, I think you have a harder place to live in especially intellectually, and maybe even more so emotionally. Let me just speak carefully here. But if there is no divine judge, then what do you do emotionally when you've been the victim of human violence? Forget intellectually, just you've been harmed, you've been attacked, you've been poisoned by the violence of another person and so you you get angry you get bitter you get depressed a number of other things how do you move forward emotionally if you don't think there's a divine judge what do you say i mean do you say uh uh, don't let bitterness run your life uh you got to just got to get over it got to forgive and move on is that what you say you can't say that it's too simple you know it If you say, if you think that's the solution, your treasure has never been violated. I mean, maybe somebody stepped on your toe one time, but that was it. But if you've really been violated, if somebody's injected their poison into your life, you can't just say forget about it and hope that that's going to work. What do you do emotionally when you have that issue happen in your life or to the lives of the people that you love? See, if you dismiss the idea of divine, a divine judge, what do, you, what do you do? But if there is a divine judge, then you can give him the poison. You can say, God, I don't know why this happened. I don't have answers to why this happened. I know what happened, and it's poisoning my life. And and if I don't give it away, my life is going to be bitter and dark. So I'm going to give it to you. And no matter how you choose to execute divine judgment, I'll be okay with that. I can't be the judge because I've got things that are in my own heart that are a problem. But you can be the judge. And see, if you're counseling someone then there's at least the way to step forward. I'm not saying it it all gets wiped up just in that one statement. But do you see, then you have somebody to say, okay, there's somebody to appeal to. There's some sort of justice that is going to happen, and you can let and trust that person to be the person who's going to be the judge, and you can emotionally move forward. So I think it's important to pause just here and that we're, we're, again, we're just focusing on this one chamber of God's heart, judgment. It's important to, to stare straight in the face the reality of divine judgment. And maybe you've never stared that in the face before. You try to stay in the grand illusion 
But it's helpful to just to stare this reality in the face. Hebrews 9.27, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And I think this is so fascinating. Jesus is telling about his own return and judgment. And listen to what he says, Matthew 24. No one knows that day or hour as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. They were living in this divine, this grand illusion. And up to the day Noah entered the ark, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. This ark... It sat in an open field for 120 years. It's like a giant billboard. Something dramatic is going to happen. And yet these people walked right by it as if, I have no idea what's going to happen. 120 years walking by and then it just happens and then they've all been washed away. Now look, when Jesus Christ comes back, it may seem sudden, but it doesn't have to be a surprise to you. It can be surprising that it happens today. But it doesn't have to take you by surprise. My question is, are you ready? Second chamber, pain, God's pain. Look, it's very unusual verse. Chapter 6, verse 6. God is grieved. God is in Pain. He, he looks at this violence and he's in pain. It's the same word Isaiah used to describe a woman whose husband has cheated on her. The same. It's ripped a relational fabric. You know, when Adam and Eve fall, they get assigned as a consequence of the fall pain. Remember that? So Eve, she gets pain in what? Childbirth. And Adam, he gets pain in what? The ground, from tilling the ground. It's, it's really not a shocker, is it? I mean, just as a parent, something happens, you've got to execute something that's going to be painful and hopes that your child remembers not to do that again. But what's stunning to me is not just that Adam is in pain or Eve's in pain, but God's in pain. Human sin causes divine suffering. This is really an amazing, an amazing thing. God is actually suffering the consequences of human sin. In Genesis chapter 3, God could have seen what happened and walked away. And one of the great theological questions is, why didn't he? And the answer to that is, I don't know. But, but by walking back in and reengaging Adam and Eve, and this may not be the right way to say it, but by God walking back into the garden instead of saying, I'm just going to destroy and start over or destroy and not do it again, by walking back in, God chooses to knit his heart to the human heart. 
he says in some way, no, no, what happens to you is going to happen to me. I'm going to knit myself to you in a way that I can't possibly get out of this in some relational way. I'm, I'm knitting myself together with humanity. It's really, it's really totally different than other world religions. God himself, he's in pain. And he chooses this pain over separation from humanity. I was talking to a friend of mine who's eight years old. And we go to soccer practice once a week. And we have very deep discussions while we on the travel to this. And so somewhere uh, the idea of lying came up. So it was a good opportunity to talk about lying. And his question was, well, what if you lie and nobody finds out? I said, you sure nobody's going to find out about this lie? You feel like it's a little bit of a confession because it kind of comes out of the blue, right? And so, uh, no, no. Uh, Pastor Paul, a lie happens. Nobody knows about it. Is that, a, is that, could that be okay? And I said, well, let's think about that. First of all, you know about it. Yeah, I would know about it. I said, and that causes you pain. I didn't say it this way, but you devolve. See, you become less than what you're meant to be. It hurts you. You you go backwards in a way. And then who else knows? And he got it right. God knows. And you know what? It caused God's pain. See, this, this idea of the God of the Bible is not this sort of deistic watchmaker, right? He makes it happen. He goes away and just whatever happens down here happens. No, he's involved in the pain. And when, and when uh, I think it was the Apostle Paul says, don't, don't do things that would grieve the Holy Spirit. You can still give God pain by what you do or what you don't do. So let's say you're a person who has this heart that when you see human violence, you just recoil. You just don't, you don't want to see it on television. You don't watch movies that have a lot of this in it. You just, you're not into that. You like the Hallmark Channel cooking shows. You just don't want to see that. But you also don't want to think about divine judgment. You don't like this particular passage in Genesis 6. You don't like some of the other passages where Israel comes in and, and they destroy a town. That just something about that divine judgment. You don't like either of those. You don't like the human pain. You don't like divine judgment. I'd say that emotion is not defective. I'd say that's good. I'd say that's good because Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what is he doing? He's recoiling. What's he recoiling from? Human violence. Who would choose to be crucified? And he's also recoiling from divine judgment. I don't want either one of these things. And so when your heart presses in to say, I don't like these things, Jesus didn't like these things. But he stood in this gap and he absorbed all the human violence and he absorbed all the divine judgment that so you and I could be free. That's the gospel. We have a judge who's willing to absorb his own judgment. Third chamber, very quickly, 
we, we see God's plan. I was at the Temple of Israel yesterday. This is the Jewish synagogue downtown. So I was there for a, uh, a, an event. Somebody, somebody was a friend of, of my wife, Nancy. And so we go down there, and the, and the rabbi preaches on Noah. I'm like, awesome. You know, give a good sermon right now, bud. You know, I'm taking notes. And I thought, okay, he believes in the Torah. You know, he believes in the Old Testament, especially these five, five books. What would I say about Noah that he would like, he would agree with? And maybe a lot of what I've said here. But why couldn't I say everything I would want to say in the temple of Israel? What would be the single biggest difference? And I would say that this is part of God's plan. He he said in Genesis chapter 3, God said in Genesis chapter 3, there's going to be a seed of the woman. In other words, something's going to happen. And I'm going to destroy this. And it's just a tiny little bit of light. You can't know everything from that. You can just know something. And as the Old Testament unfolds, it's like the aperture gets wider and more light comes in. And you say, okay, I see something bigger now than I saw before. And when you look at this, this story and you see one righteous man standing in the gap for all of humanity and all of creation... When you see one righteous man and everybody who's part of his family gets saved. When you see one righteous man who starts all of creation, it's like there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. When you see one righteous man entering in this wooden object, you see a little more light comes on the scene. And I would say what the rabbi misses is he misses this aperture opening to say, Don't you see? This is somebody, and this somebody came. His name is Jesus. He's the one, if you're connected to him, if you're part of his family, no matter how chaotic the world is, you're going to be safe. He he is going to get you all the way home. And you're going to have a lot of questions on this ark. When is it going to end? Why is he doing it? I mean, yes, okay, but, but I'm trusting this one, one person. He has the strength to get me home and to actually be the answer to all of my questions. Are you living in a grand illusion? Do you really understand your heart? Or do you say, I know I have something defective, and I'm trying aspirin and ice cream. Have you been able to see and celebrate God's heart? Let's pray together.